Global Capital Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair, and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, the Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And I'm Lewis McClellan, the SSA Editor. And I'm Bohan Kadbai, Deputy SSA Editor. This podcast will take you each week through some of the biggest and most interesting stories you need to know about for your week ahead. And if you want to read more about what we're discussing today, please go to globalcapital.com. Why, listeners may be wondering, do we have two journalists on this week who cover the same topic? It must be a pretty huge topic, right? Well, it is. In fact, it's an 800 billion euro sized topic, the European Union's next generation EU programme to help the bloc recover from the ravages of the coronavirus pandemic. It's funding all of that in the bond market. And this week marked the midpoint of a trio of deals to be done by the end of July to get the programme underway. Lewis, can you bring us up to date briefly on what the EU has done so far and what has to be done between now and 2026 when the funding is due to be completed? Yes, Ralph, thank you. Uh, So, as you mentioned, it's an 800 billion programme. That's roughly an average of 150 billion a year, of which the first 80 billion uh, should be coming in 2021. Uh, We've had the first deal uh, a couple of weeks ago was 20 billion 10 year, and now we've had uh, a dual tranche deal this week, which was another 15 billion combined. Uh, So, you know, they're getting through it quite quickly. Uh, the, The pace is not too different from the pace that they maintained for their previous funding program, the support to mitigate unemployment risks in an emergency program, where they've done uh, 100 billion, almost 100 billion between, uh, when did they start that, Burhan? Last June? Um, and uh, and just now, uh, they, they finished that just before the next Gen EU program started. Burhan, how does that sort of size of program compare to other, other borrowers in the SSA market? So, yeah, as Lewis said, the total program is 800 billion, which translates to about 150 uh, plus billion uh, a year between now and the end of 2026. So in net terms, it's certainly bigger than most of the supranational agency borrowers. Uh, KFW raise uh, 70 billion a year, uh, as do EIB. So it's it's definitely uh, very much like a sovereign issuer in terms of the size, Um, um, definitely in the top five, but obviously smaller than the likes of France and Italy. Uh, France raised about 260 billion a year, Italy 367, uh, and Germany 470. So bigger than supernatural agencies and definitely uh, up there in terms of the uh, sovereign issuers. And what's going to happen after 2026? Because they're, they're borrowing all this money. Um, are they just going to pay it back or, or will they have to keep keep borrowing? So yeah, so after the end of 2026, the net funding will stop. Um, so that, so naturally the EU's debt stock will shrink and it will just be refinancing with the final repayments uh, due at the end of 2058. But in reality, it's in fact usually quite difficult to pay off debt, isn't it? And people think, you know, this is going to be temporary, but it, it ends up being forever. So the EU has um, a big part of the political process uh, of this was the own resources decision, uh, which gives the EU uh, some capacity to, to raise the revenue to pay this back. So uh, that, that should provide about 15 billion a year to, uh, to pay back the, the borrowing uh, between, between 2026 and, and 2058. Uh, that, if you do the maths, is 450 billion, which is roughly the amount of grants. The, the rest of it will come in the form of uh, loans, uh, which should be paid back by the, 
by the sovereigns. Although, as you say, uh, there is always a, a question mark about that. So yeah, that was a good point, John, that you raised, and I think that's the that's the big talking point that the EU will become uh, will maintain a permanent uh, big size borrowing program, um, and, and as a result, become a European safe asset equivalent to US Treasuries or the gilt market. What's this safe asset you're referring to? Uh, a safe asset for for Europe. Well, at the moment, what people use is is the Bund, the the safest credit in in the in the eurozone, uh, but that's just Germany. Um, a European safe asset would have, uh, as the EU does, some reflection of the credit risk of the EU as a as a whole block. But that implies that the EU bonds are seen as safer than the German ones. Well, not necessarily. It's I, I don't think they're seen as safer, but uh, it's it's not as safe as the German ones. I think a big uh, a big attraction of a European level safe asset is. Just the scarcity of bonds. Uh, Germany, although it's borrowing a lot of money because of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, until last year didn't borrow all that much money at all, and that made bonds quite quite a scarce resource. Who actually wants a European safe asset, and why do they want it? Surely, I mean, the the euro has been around for whatever it is now, twenty years or so, and we seem to have done fine without one. Why do we need one now? So there's lots of reasons. I think um, one of them is that uh, the whole point of uh, deepening the European capital markets and, uh, uh, and making it more attractive, something that can rival the treasuries and the gilts, um, but also um, those that want it are the big European issuers, the sovereign issuers. Uh, the point is that um, uh, investors will use a safe asset to build on risk in their portfolios. They'll, they'll buy the EU's bonds and then add on risk um, from that, You know, adding in more riskier credits. So presumably you're referring there to sort of Eurozone periphery countries like Spain and Italy. Yeah, exactly. So th those issues will be quite, quite keen on a European safe asset. Uh, as Lewis mentioned, bonds are quite scarce. So even though they are very safe, um, um, they're not as uh, easy to get um, with the German debt break. So, um, yeah, that, 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 that's the point. I don't really understand why if an investor is buying these new safe assets, it would that Italy thinks that will make it want to buy more Italian debt as well. Surely the, surely the EU borrowing would crowd out Italy. Well, the theory is actually the opposite. Uh, if you're an investor and you've got to, to manage your risk, the more of the safest or you know high quality safe assets you can hold, that frees you up to hold more of, uh, more of the less safe assets as well from a risk management perspective. I suppose another point is the size of borrowing that the EU will have to maintain to become a safe asset. That obviously requires a big and liquid market and therefore a lot of issuance. Has anyone given any sort of indication as to what sort of size would constitute a safe asset? I think the, the issue here is, well, I think 150 billion a year of issuance is enough uh, to create a, a European safe asset. The issue is that they're only doing that until the end of 2026. And, and as we've mentioned, uh, from that point on, we'll be looking at a diminishing stock of, uh, uh, of, of, Euro, of Euro safe assets, which is, uh, which is not really the, the foundation for a European safe asset. And that brings in the question of, will they actually stop borrowing then? It will take another political decision to, to extend the life of the EU's borrowing program. But uh, that is what a lot of people expect to happen. And they will have to find something to fund, presumably, to borrow all this money. Uh, they can't surely be banking on another pandemic in five years' time or another huge global shock that they're going to have to 
fund in an emergency. What else are they talking about funding with the cash? Yeah, the question of what they can fund is uh, is an interesting one. But you know, there's never once you've once you've opened the gates to the EU funding, it, it, there's a lot of possibilities for things that seem urgent enough uh, concepts to require EU funding. I think the the big one is is climate change. But I think from a political perspective, uh, inequality in in Europe has become. Uh, a serious political consideration and it's led to uh, the rise of various right-wing populist movements and the power structures of the EU are aware of that and are aware that debt financing a budget to invest in growth and, and hopefully reduce inequality is uh, is a defence against that, that political direction. Have they had much success with that though? Because there has been a whole question, hasn't there, about um, the prevalence of the rule of law. Uh, with extending funding to some of these countries. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but uh, I think I think the idea is that with EU financed investment in growth, you can raise the standard of living in the poorer parts of the Eurozone and, and sort of reduce the resentment that leads to the rise of uh, the, the right-wing populists that are the threat to the, the rule of law. Yeah, I wonder if that's going to happen. I mean... If we take the UK as an example, some of the parts of the country that were the biggest supporters of Brexit, like some of the poorer parts of the country, were in fact some of the biggest recipients of EU aid. So uh, it doesn't necessarily seem to there doesn't seem to be a good precedent for that. I suppose and that's true, but I think the backdrop to that was uh, was austerity in the UK. Ten years of uh, of austerity, and it, that was also the case in the EU, but. That's uh, that's very much out of fashion among the the, the power structures of, of the EU now. So at the heart of this, do we feel like there might be some sort of European federalist mission creep here to extend the EU's authority, uh, both in the capital markets, or its power in the capital markets, and its authority as a as a fiscal power? Yeah, I think uh, I think certainly a lot of people will see it that way. People who who want to protect national sovereignty will will certainly see it that way. Um, I think the architects of the European Union and the architects of the euro would more likely have seen this as uh, a continuation of the trajectory that they envisaged. Uh, if you imagine a, a you know a common currency, I think economic integration and political integration were always supposed to develop from that and uh, we're now seeing the EU uh, developing the, the the foundations of a common fiscal policy so it you know if you're if you're in favor of national sovereignty then it is mission creep if you're in favor of European integration then this is uh, this is just part of the course but I'd just like to come back to this topic of pricing because that's how the market determines how safe an asset is or, or what it what its view of the safety is so how is the EU pricing compared with, say, Germany or France? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, Germany, as the, the safest credit in, in Europe, is, is obviously the, the most expensive. Uh, the EU, if it's a sort of aggregation of the credit risk of, of uh, its constituent member states, uh, is going to be cheaper uh, than that. And that is indeed what we see. It's trading um, a little inside of France. Uh, there's about 35 basis points of spread, 32 basis points of spread between uh, France and Germany. Uh, I think in general, um, it varies uh, depending on the point of the curve, but the EU is about five basis points or so inside France. 
I think it's probably worth pointing out too that that will the size of each market will have a bearing on that. Um, according to the Finance Agentur's own website, the the Germ- German sovereign debt accounts for something like sixteen and a half percent of eurozone sovereign debt last year. Uh, France and Italy are the two biggest; they're worth about a quarter of the market each. So that, of course, will influence that that spread too. And I guess this is the point people are making too: is that they can't buy bonds because there aren't enough of them about. So they need something else, and this this I guess is the is what they want. So what they're yeah. really saying is not this is the safe asset of Europe. It's a cheaper safe asset. In fact, they want it's a sort of instead of they can buy bonds, but they're too expensive. So this is something a bit cheaper and more liquid as well, especially the longer tenors. Um, that, that's another argument for for buying the EU. Yeah, cheaper, more widely available, uh, and. Uh, I guess reflecting the credit of the eurozone as a whole does make it less safe, but is uh, conceptually useful. One of the things that people were talking about for the last ten years or so, on and off, is about having an EU joint sovereign bond. At its heart, do we think that the expansion or the potential expansion of the EU into a permanent borrower of size? is a sort of foot in the door to, to those who support that idea still. Surely it is that, isn't it? There might be some wrinkles about uh, joint and several liability, but um, that will only uh, that will only become obvious if somebody uh, if somebody doesn't pay in. But uh, to all intents and purposes, this, uh, this does seem essentially that, yeah. I think it's just a question of how you know, it's already doing some of the borrowing for the for the European Union's governments, right? The question is, how much does that grow? And I think the argument Lewis made about climate change um, is convincing that there's going to be increasingly things that, you know, the public sphere wants funded that they feel the can be sort of put onto the EU. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, John. Um, the fact is that uh, it was a huge political fight for the EU to to get this funding program off the ground. There were a lot of uh, there were a lot of objections to it uh, from Austria, the Netherlands, uh, so, some Northern European suspects. Uh, the interesting thing was that Germany was in favour of it, where Germany has historically been a big obstacle to this. And if they do want to extend the program after twenty twenty six, it will be another political fight, but uh it's a winnable fight now they they've demonstrated that they did win the fight on on the basis that uh this was uh a temporary measure you know a, a response to the crisis but uh there is always another crisis and the eu is all about uh climate change and very easy to to sell that as a crisis well as i think john mentioned at the start you know these uh these temporary measures have a habit of becoming permanent don't they we only have to look at QE for that, and uh, even in terms of the SSA bond market, CADES, the French agency, was set up originally with a very limited lifespan, and it's still going way beyond that with a much bigger borrowing remit. Yeah, the point there was to amortize the debt and pay it off from from income, wasn't it, just like it is with NextGen? Yeah, the debt seems to have gone in the opposite direction, though. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is worth uh, it is worth mentioning since you mentioned QE, uh, that's something that seems permanent, but you know next year uh, it could become a lot less. And 
If it does, uh, the EU's access to capital markets will, and everyone's access to capital markets will become more difficult and more expensive. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out that if they are going to be able to extend the EU's funding programme, that will only happen if this has been demonstrably a success uh, and if quantitative easing uh, winds up or, or is reduced and borrowing becomes more difficult, then uh, it's going to be more difficult to sell the EU's experience in capital markets as an unmitigated success that they should just keep running with. Well, that's a good point, isn't it? Because um, although 800 billion euros is a staggering amount of money to have to go and borrow, when you have a central bank uh, sitting behind it that's about to hoover up most of that supply or at least a great chunk of that supply, then it makes that task an awful lot easier. Do we have a feeling for how much of the 800 billion euros will end up on the ECB's balance sheet? Well, at the moment, the ECB is able to buy uh, up to 50% of uh, each bonds that uh, that the EU issues because it's a supranational. Um, that is quite a lot. And the EU, the ECB rather, has essentially uh, guaranteed that the quantitative easing will absorb all the net supply uh, that comes in, uh, in the SSA market in 2021. From 2022, bets are off. Uh, the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme, under which a lot of the, the, the vast majority of purchases take place, uh, is due to be phased out in March 2022. But we don't know yet what that landscape will look like. It's possible that the ECB will keep buying uh, or will you know, expand the powers of its other asset purchase programmes. Uh, there's still big question marks there about the ECB strategy. Um, now, I don't think this would be a proper discussion about bond markets in this day and age without talking about green bonds. Um, how much or will any of the next gen EU issuance be done as green or social bonds or other sort of labelled supply? So yeah, so from September, the EU will start issuing green bonds and about 30% of its um, total issuance will be in green format um, by under the next gen programme, obviously the short programme, which they have largely completed was was uh, was issued as social bonds uh, and these bonds will be issued as green bonds so will will in fact the benefit of the eu as a safe asset be in fact that it is the best benchmark for the green bond market yeah that's a good point it'll certainly be a game changer it'll be, it'll be the biggest issue of green bonds so it would also um become the benchmark for green bonds um as well and lewis i think you've written something about that this week haven't you about um actually there's a threat that this amount of green bond supply from one issuer is actually going to crowd out green funding opportunities for other borrowers yeah i think the interesting thing is it's not a question of there not being enough demand for green bonds there's huge demand for for green bonds the point is that uh countries have to earmark assets that are eligible for financing via green bonds and uh, to obtain EU money, uh, a lot of those have to end up in countries' national recovery and resilience plans. And the fact is, you know, that means they're going to collect up all their eligible green projects and uh, fund them with EU money. So there'll be very, very little need for them to continue to access the green bond market. Just on green bonds, actually, do you think the issuance of the EU as green bonds, uh, the, the social bonds under Shaw, does that sort of fragment the EU's issuance and diminishes the uh, its status as a safe as a safe asset? I think it's difficult to know whether uh, at this stage whether or not it is going to fragment the curve. That is certainly a concern that, that sovereign DMOs have talked about. Um, 
for themselves. But uh, the currently the next gen EU bonds are trading in line with the Sure program, which was social bonds. So so far there hasn't been a fragmentation effect. Until they actually get green bonds off the ground, I, I don't think we can know. I don't really believe in this fragmentation argument. I mean, it's it's arguably something to think about for borrowers with a very small borrowing requirement. And Denmark is the one that was most worried about the issue. Sweden were a bit too, but but I think, you know, the Germans worried about it unnecessarily. And their program shows, doesn't it, that, um, you know, the green assets are loved by the market and, um, you know, the fragmentation really isn't a problem. Yeah, Portugal talked about it as well. Yeah, Germany's traditional argument was always that a benchmark should be a benchmark and there should be no sort of funky bells and whistles. It should be the most plain vanilla, most widely available offering with uh, very little uh, complexity to it. And what they did was they issued a green bond alongside a sort of fungible conventional bond. Um, I suppose something a bit like a sort of 144a reg s issue but in a green and conventional bun format um john have we ever had a sense or, or lewis or Burhan, have we ever had a sense uh, whether investors took germany up on its offer and switched from the green bund into the conventional issue or has that just been a complete non-issue uh, i have asked the finance agentur about this and officially they they won't confirm but uh no it's never happened nobody has ever uh taking the conventional bond for made use of the the finanzagentur's facility to swap the green bond for the conventional mm. bond because why would you it's, it's consistently been more expensive it's consistently been a more valuable asset it's it's important conceptually but uh as yet and i see no as yet it's never been used and i see no reason it ever would be i think just coming back to the point about the the benchmark for the green bond market though um, I'm skeptical about that as well, because um, bond pricing has to start with the credit risk and the, you know, the inherent bond characteristics of the asset. And therefore, every issuer needs to price its green bonds relative to its own ordinary bonds. The green element is, is a sort of extra factor of excitement for the investors, which usually means the green bonds price more tightly. But the benchmark has to be their own bonds. And, and it's not really relevant to sort of point to some other green bond as, as a benchmark. What I think it does do for investors is stuff up their portfolios. It gives them, that's why the investors are clamoring for governments to issue green bonds is so that they can have nice big portfolios. Which I guess goes back to uh, the point Burhan made, which is that I suppose it's a similar argument, isn't it? That uh, periphery uh, sovereigns would benefit from greater EU issuance. If there's more more supply of something that's a better credit, they are then free uh, free to add on in percentage terms more more bonds from uh, from from riskier riskier names. Well, I'm skeptical about that because th this is you know green bonds are a new exciting thing that everybody wants to put money into. Government bonds are not. They're a sort of you know tedious necessity right that people have to invest in because part of their portfolio has to go into public sector assets safe assets but nobody nobody has any great enthusiasm for it or is going to be suddenly inspired to go and build a government bond portfolio because there are more of them about 
I think you'll find there are three people on this call who get very excited about government bonds, John. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, John. Uh, but I think, I think you know, if we're talking about scarcity of bonds, right, and uh, yeah, government bonds are pretty expensive and not necessarily that exciting. But uh, if you look at something like Italy, that's uh, that's got real carry you know that's something that investors do want to hold more of and if their 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 ability to hold that is limited by the amount of bones they can get hold of you know having a different eurozone safe asset will, will change that whether the eu becomes some sort of european benchmark and what that will mean for government bond markets remains very much an open question but without doubt those in favor of a eu safe asset now have their foot in the door with the arrival of the next gen program to see how this story develops be sure to visit globalcapital.com Thank you to Lewis, Burhan and John for joining me and we'll be back again next week with more tales from the capital markets. Goodbye.